Cool. Well, um, welcome, class. I'm going to pray, and I'm going to dive in. Thank you for being here on this beautiful day. Um, yeah. Lord, we thank you for just this time to look at your word, to look into your truth. We ask that, Spirit, you would be our teacher. You would guide us into truth, into understanding, into knowledge, into wisdom, into insight, into looking into the prophetic word of your scriptures through your prophet Jonah and seeing your word there. And all of these things and all these ways, we thank you and give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Cool. Um, well, just a quick recap of last week, and then we'll, we'll jump into some stuff. Today is going to be a bit of um, group work, because we're going to start my favorite part of any sort of Bible study, and it's actually looking at the text and then breaking it down. Did you guys ever love that part of English class growing up where you had to diagram sentences? We're not going to do that, but it's going to be kind of thematically close, where we're going to diagram narrative and narrative thought and narrative flow within a book. Um, so last week we talked about why study the Bible, why study how to read the Bible, um, and the question as well, where is meaning found? Is it, are we looking for meaning in the, the author's original intent and the text and what it's saying in itself, or in me, do I ultimately decide what meaning is and whatever it means to me? is what it is. So we had some great discussion last week. I had someone stop me afterwards. I had like seven people stop me afterwards. Um, but one in particular that said, I wasn't in class today, but that sounded like a really heated, what you guys were talking about in the hallway. Did everything go okay? I think so. Like we just poked at some stuff and just talked about like, where is meaning and how do we know and how much is God dictating over man and God working through man to write scripture and text and how much is it a recognizing it and all those things. So it's just really important to know when we're looking at scripture um, that there are rules and the rules are generally called hermeneutics, um, rules of study, rules of interpretation. Basically the word hermeneutics means like how do, how do we know? Like if you break it on down, it's how do we know that the Bible says this? Um, I was again reminded as I was in a wonderful something yesterday at a wonderful church that might be called New Life and the pastor was up front and he was taking comfort in his prayer from the stage that where two or three are gathered in our name, the Lord is there also. And, like, theologically that is true, but it's never not true, but that text of two or three are gathered in my name isn't necessarily talking about that. So we need to look at what the type of writing is, what the context is, look at hermeneutical rules to really make sure that we're understanding. Um, I remember when I was growing up, Summit Ministries, did you guys, anybody go to Summit here? It's like two weeks of, in, like 90 hours of classroom time in two weeks. It was intense. But one of the speakers was talking about uh, never read a Bible verse is, was the message that he brought. And basically he was trying to get to, like, you need to look at the context to understand the verse. And then when we see, once we see it and understand it, then we can discuss it and share it and then respond appropriately to whatever it's saying. And so there's just, there's rules of hermeneutics that help us find all of those um, and as far as meaning goes as well, I, I hope we got back to this idea of it's the author's meaning that we're looking for. Because especially as Christians, we, we hold to that there is a, an authority over us um, and that when we're looking at the authority of meaning within a work of art or literature or a play or a movie or something, it's really what the author was going for. You might have some who are kind of out there a little bit. I don't know if you guys know Jared Anderson. He's written some weird songs. And if you ask him what they mean, he will say, well, what does it mean to you? Okay, well, authorial intent in that was probably, what does it mean to you? 
I would suggest authorial tent in the Bible is not what does it mean to you, but what does it mean to God and the author and why are they writing and all that. So uh, these next three weeks, um, and today especially, we're going to in- jump into type, genre, form, order and structure, parallels, motifs, themes, narrative, um, and then biblical versus systematic theology because that's really fascinating too. Um, so as we jump in, any book that is being written is written by someone. And if we understand a little bit more about the context in which they are writing, we will get at least a basis before we even jump into a book about what is actually happening. Um, two, two thoughts here. Who has an actual Bible with them that's not on their phone? That, that does not count. That might work, but probably not. Who's got a study Bible? Anyone walking around with a thick... Come on, that's what I'm talking about. So in, our, in my newer thin line, like this... This has no preface in it for the book of Jonah. It just starts in. There's no like historical, this is the context in which its book is being written. I don't know, do any of you have those Bibles and you read that preface before a book actually starts? Like, here's the author. Here's what's going on. Here's the history of the book. Like, yeah, I, I don't carry around my big Bible because it's heavy. So I just carry this guy. Um, any, like a good study Bible, part of the reason that it's a study Bible is because it's showing you a context in which the history is being written. And that will assuredly, I promise you, help um, you understand the context of why this is being written. Like what is going on? Good pieces of literature are written with motive. Something happened. It's like a good crime, right? We all love our crime shows. Anybody get into, into Forever? No? Forever? Anyone have seen that one yet? Oh my gosh. It's so great. It's got that guy who plays Mr. Fantastic. It's amazing. But any, any good crime, any good story, there is a motive for writing. And in that motive, we find kind of why. why. If we know why he's writing, we can maybe look and see this is what the book is about. This is the bent in which he's putting, and this is the theme. So in Jonah, in my Bible, it doesn't actually have that. Um, I'm going to back up a little bit in the rest of your Bibles. I'm sure you guys skip over most everything before the book of Genesis, assumptively. Do you guys ever read before Genesis in your Bibles? Yes. To go stand. Um, in it, in, in the beginning, it's basically going to throw down um, a lot, a lot, a lot of information. No, 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 no. I see what you're saying, but before Genesis. Uh, <laughs> oh, Steve. Um, mine is, again, fairly thin, but it's going to go through translation style and uh, rules for their translations, what they were trying to accomplish with it. It's going to go through um, headings and uh, text and canon and... Um, organizational style of the book itself. So even before reading your Bible, you're going to gain a lot of understanding if you were just to look at that. Because the NLV is written very differently than the ESV, which is very different than the King James. And are any of them wrong? Not necessarily. But what were the translators at that time? I mean, if they're acting as kind of like an author translating it, what was their goal with translating it at that time? Or even, dare I say, the TNIV. Does anyone know about that whole controversy? Where they tried to make the words gender inclusive? how dare they accept the fact that the Hebrew words weren't gender inclusive or exclusive. So how do you, how do, you do it without making it a plural? And so they just talk about translations and grammar and the situations within that, um, which just gives you some context of why these translations aren't necessarily good nor bad. They are, and they were helpful for one thing or another. A new Christian might not appreciate the King James like a poetry major would because the King James was written in a very poetic language, and that's the context with which it was written. It was written during Shakespeare's time, which is crazy. So if you, if you see that and see they were trying to write a language that was poetic, they were trying to translate as well as 
um, just throw beauty in the way that it was being spoken, in the spoken word, because it was meant for a people to be read, to be spoken, and all that. So, um, so that's great context. The book of Jonah, we're going to jump into these questions. Who's writing? Who is he writing to? Or they? When are they writing? Where are they writing from? Um, we can't always answer all of these questions, because sometimes we just straight up don't know. Case in point, the book of Hebrews. Who wrote that one? I don't know. Which, strangely enough, is why they put it at the end of Paul's letters, but before John's and Peter's. Because John's and Peter's and Paul's are very obvious. I, Paul, am writing to you. Hebrews, we don't know, so they just kind of put it in the middle there going, it could be anyone. It could be Barnabas. It could be a female even. <gasps> Who knows? So, uh, how are they writing? Narrative poetry discourse, we'll jump into that. And then, what and why are they writing? And so, the first five questions will inform us maybe a little bit of the six, and then as we go and dive into the actual text, we might get a little bit more. So, what I'd like you to do is break up into a group of maybe two, three, four-ish, and see how far you can get into answering some of these questions about the book of Jonah, either because you know, or because your Bible tells you, or because you have a concordance app on you, or an accordance with you, or whatever it might be. But see if you can answer those first five, four, four questions. You can answer five, too, if you already know that. Um, but specifically those first four. Who's writing? Who are they writing to? When are they writing? And where are they writing from? Um, this will give us context for the book, which will help us understand the message within it. You have about two minutes ready to go. Not as much as an adult. I, I figure it's I learned to breathe or swallow better or something like that. Whatever about the diaphragm. And if any groups want to start with question four and work your way back, that's fine too, just so we have all the answers when we need to continue. And as you guys are going, just to give you some context, keep looking and talking, but I'm just going to talk over you a little bit. Um, the answers aren't always clear. They're not always known. And a lot of your translations in that pretext, it'll say tradition holds to. Um, like, for instance, tradition holds to Genesis being written by Moses. Um, 
it could be argued that there's three authors of Moses if you want to really get nitty-gritty with it because of the styles and the types of writing and the way the grammar is being structured. Mo- there's no self-proclamation of who wrote it. Um, but generally, I mean, I know we're not all Catholic, but tradition does hold some gravitas to how we look and interpret some things, and um, it's all just good to know. And, yeah. Welcome. All right, guys, for sake of time, we're going to jump into this. Um, if you're not done with your question, questions, someone else might be able to fill in the blank, or I might be able to fill in the blank. Question number one, who is writing the book of Jonah? Jonah. Jonah. Says who? Jonah 1.1 says that, that Jonah is writing the book? Well, now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amitai, saying, arise and go. So is, is Jonah ever self-proclaiming that he is the one writing the book? You guys might be able to, based on the question I just asked in your answer, I'm going to ask another question and just use your deductive reasoning to answer this one. Is there any circumstance in the book of Jonah, except when it's a first-person quote and Jonah is saying, and then I, whatever, where Jonah is writing the book in the first person, saying I? No. It's fascinating as far as the, the prophets go. Jonah is written basically in a completely second person form of view. Um, if you look just at that first paragraph in Jonah, 
the word of the Lord came to him. It said this, arise and go and call out. But Jonah rose to flee. So it's a second person telling a story about Jonah from the presence and found a ship going to Tarshish. And then he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away with the presence of the Lord. So from the very get-go, you don't have a self-proclamation that Jonah is the one writing. And you don't have a, 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 a tense um, first person, second, third, that Jonah is telling a story about himself, which within Scripture is, is, is especially the prophets of Scripture, is um, very uncommon. Most of the time, it's a, the story is, this is what it is, and um, I'm telling this, and this is the word of the Lord that came to me, and I said this, and then I went here, and then I said this, and then I did this, and it's very first person because it's Zechariah who's writing it, or it's Amos, or it's Hosea. They are taking it on as a first person, the word of the Lord said this way. And Jonah is more so second. So how do you know who's writing? In this case, I heard tradition, which is a good... Jonah, could he very well have written it? Yes. But it would be very much a, I, Jonah, am writing it like a kind of out of body about myself, not in first person, this is what happened, and let me tell you my story. Uh Uh-huh. This is so true. I, I have good news and bad news. The good news is you are on it. Because it is. Jonah, there's a lot of times in the book where Jonah, it says, and then Jonah said, I want, want, want. And that's kind of what's happening there. He went into the fish, and then it's the kind of exposition of what was prayed within the fish. Um, so you're on it. You're looking at the tenses, which is really important within narrative. And, and, and we're going to be looking at narrative because that's what Jonah is. Um, the, the good news is that. The bad news is Jonah is a plagiarizer, and we're going to get into that next week. <laughs> um, <laughs> to, to, to bait it a little bit, it's all first person, yes, but it's all first person because he's pretty much ripping off the book of Psalms in various chapters and re-spouting these prayers that happened within the book of Psalms. So, um, so it still works out that it could be Jonah, and he is using first person in that. Like uh, in Jonah 3... Um, it goes back into the second person. And there's, if you really want to get crazy with Jonah, it's, does that part even belong? And traditionally, yes, but it's, that's when you get nitpicky with it. But yes, he could say that. But even in that context, it's a story about him, and then it's kind of taking on, and this is what he said, and then I cried out, and I, and then he's reciting that prayer. So uh, tradition is one part of it that holds that Jonah wrote it. Um, the other part would be we don't really know. And is it important more or less maybe, maybe not, because the story of Jonah is about Jonah. That's kind of indisputable. And it's, it's a story, so it doesn't need to be a first-person account. And we'll get into that a little bit as far as when we get to poetic and narrative. Um, what context gives its clues? It's that of what tradition history say. Okay, question number two. Um, who is the book of Jonah written to? This might be more assumptive than it is actual. I, the people of Israel, right. And why, why would we say that? What is, how do you know? What's the context? What gives us clues into that? Yes. Say that again a little bit louder. <laughs> so everyone can hear. Because it was written um, when Israel was the lowest point of oppression um, during the reign of Joash. During the reign of Joash, Israel's the lowest point of oppression. Um, this is going to blend into the next question of when is it written. It's during this certain time period. It's traditionally the Jews. Most of the books that are written to the Gentiles, there's a, a few things that tip us off. 
like in former prophets, if you look at, I think it's Amos or so, it, it actually is this, you Ninevites or you whomever, and it's this very clear that they are addressing a country that's not their own. Um, after that, the default is kind of, their, it's, they're writing to their own people. If it's not clear that they're writing to someone else, you, you generally take it on as this is a story for their own, their own nation, their, the, the nation of Israel within whatever context they're in. Yeah. Right. So yeah. So Jonah, the context, just to repeat, because it's a really good point, he wouldn't have been the only prophet who didn't want to go. There, there's generally not a time in Israel's history, maybe Samuel, you could argue, where the word of the Lord was not like widespread in that day, um, where there wasn't more than one prophet in Israel. Uh, you. You look at the kings and you look at the time of David and Elijah and Elisha, and it wasn't like this is the prophet of Israel, so there's only one. Samuel was a little bit unique in that situation. Usually there's multiple, and they, you get references of them. Even, was it Elijah who ran and then, look, I've preserved a hundred prophets who have not bowed the knee to Baal. There's generally more than one. We don't hear about them because canonically we, we haven't preserved whatever they're prophecies were, or even, I mean, they mistook Saul for being a prophet. Is he among the prophets? Because he, the Spirit of the Lord came on him in that context, and he prophesied. No. Um, So yeah, there would be more than one, uh, and you guys are all leading into the next question. When are they writing? Um, So if it is, if it is Jonah or someone, whatever, whoever it is, is writing a story about. It's not a first person, it's a second person about, and we know that just because of the context and the words and the, the tenses that are used. And then you get into who are they writing to? Most likely Israel, because it's not stated otherwise, and there's no context that would have it otherwise. When is the author writing? Um, you can give me a specific year and date, or you can give me kind of these are the events that have happened that are surrounding um, Israel and their history at this time. Did any of your after the fall of Nineveh? What do you mean? You guys have to speak so much louder for me. When I was, like, in third grade, I lost a lot of hearing. And when you speak like this, I can't understand what you're saying. Okay, what were you saying? Before the Babylonians destroyed Nineveh. Okay, this is true. So Nineveh did fall. The Babylonians destroyed it. Um, Babylon, Assyrians, clash. What, I guess, precedes this in the, the history of Israel? What has gone on um, or is going on within this time frame context hmm the exile yeah so Assyrian Babylon came in at different points and exiled the north and the south so the north being 10 um, tribes the south being two and at different points they were exiled Nineveh was the capital of ancient Assyria and so if you're looking at this from your your history books or anything pretty much I don't know it's this this wouldn't be us but if we were in Europe um, you can play with the things too basically Hitler came in and took us over and took us all back to Germany. And then some time has played out. They're about, they haven't been conquered yet, but we are being told to go and preach to Berlin and preach this word against them. So that's kind of the context that's going on. Like, it, they've been exiled. It's already happened. And Jonah is being told, go and proclaim this word of God to them 
who uh, basically has killed you and taken you from your home and exiled you. So if you take on if, some of this context, you just start to think about and ask some of these questions, which are very simple questions you can re- ask about any text. Um, you start getting this context of like, this, I, might, I might see why Jonah would totally run away from this because this is heavy. Like, you want me to go into the, the, you know, the lion's den and proclaim your word? Though, if you look at the context of it, his word isn't this gracious word. It's, it's uh, their sin, is, their evil has come up before me, and that's what we're told is he's proclaiming. But that's the context of when he is writing. So who is it? It's Jonah or someone else writing in the second person sort of story view um, to the Ninevites in this context. It's post-exile, but before Nineveh has fallen in the Assyrian Empire. Um, uh, where are they writing from? Do we have any context for this? This question is more important sometimes in Old Testament books uh, or in kind of like the letters of Paul's in prison. We have his prison epistles, and you get some context of why he's writing some of the ideas that he is. Um, but where is Jonah writing from? Did anybody come up with an answer? Probably not, because I don't, I don't really know it either. There's not really a context of he is writing from this place or this point or like, it, it just we don't really know, which is fine. So it gets down to then the next question how is the book being written? So who, who, when, where, um, and then how would be your next question. We've talked about this before. Does anybody remember these beautiful three types of literature and seven genres within those types? This is, this is some of my most exciting stuff. Why? Why is it? Okay, the rest of this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask this first. What and why are they writing? So this is what, like how are they writing, and then we'll get into the why. The why is really the crux of any book. Um, any narrative that's being written is, there is a why. Why is he writing, which lends into, and this is the message that he's trying to say. So the why is the message that he's trying to get across. Um, and the rest of this context is going to give us some idea of why that is. And it's really going to take us the next two and a half weeks to unravel. Oh, is, that what, is that why he's writing? Oh, I get it. Any other questions? Perfect. You guys are doing great. Um, how is he writing? Three types. So... Um, Generally, anything that is written, I'm going to say this. This is going to be profound. Get your pens ready. Anything that is written is literature. <sighs> Save that one, tweet it out, whatever you want. It's literature. It's written down, so it is literature. The pamphlet that I got from the guy on the street corner downtown was a piece of literature. The book that I borrowed from the library was a piece of literature. The online news article was a piece of literature. If it is written, it is literature. It's just it's kind of what it is. Within literature, though, there are different types of literature. So all of those examples that I just mentioned are all different types. Then you guys might have your favorite types of literature. They could be fiction, as though it's a novel, and this is the type of literature that it's in. It could be graphic comics, and you just love the character of Superman, and you have every one of his books. No? Okay. But that is a different type of literature. Um, It could be you just love news articles and you read the newspaper every day. So they're all literature, but they're broken down into different types. According to the type that it is will inform us how we are supposed to read it. So depending on the type will depend on how we read it. If we are reading a comic book, most likely you are not taking the words in it very seriously as though they are truth, correct? Do you have to ask that question before you even start reading or is it just, well, it's a comic book, like... Of course, based on its type of literature, it's not true. Um, One of the easy examples is within a newspaper. There are different sections of the newspaper, and they determine how we read that specific section. So, for instance, 
I would not say that there is an actual kingdom of id, and there is a wizard of id, and he tells funny jokes and has funny circumstances, nor is there a shark named Sherman, and he has a lagoon, and he has a friend who's a crab, and they sometimes eat people. Um, that would be Sherman's Lagoon. I don't know. Does anybody read the comics anymore? Those are, those are like the best. What are you guys' favorite comics? Who? Calvin and Hobbes. If there's some theological truth in a comic, it is Calvin and Hobbes, right? So even that's a great example, though, because even within Calvin and Hobbes, we know that there's not an actual little boy who's blonde and has a talking stuffed tiger, and they go on adventures together. But within that text, there could be a truth that it's relaying in some way. So is the story true? No. But does the type of literature maybe relay a certain meaning? Yes. Like even within movies, depending on the movie type, um, there's, just, there's just different messages. Hopefully, if it's good, if it really is. If it's a trash movie, it's probably because you walked away going, what was that even about? Well, probably nothing. What was Braveheart about? Why was that so great? Because it was this fight for freedom and what is it to be a nation and a people and have an identity that's being encroached upon and what does it look to fight back and, and not just with brawn but with your mind as well and all, all of it, such good stories. So the type of literature that it is will, will inform how we are reading it to some degrees. Maybe not to an absolute degree but to some degrees. So within scripture, our, our beautiful Bible, um, and this applies for the Apocrypha, pretty much applies for any context that it could be. Um, scripture is three types of literature, and they are narrative, they are poetry, and they are discourse. Um, anyone want to quick define for me what narrative means? Story. Is that what I saw you mouth, Brooks? Sto- story. Story. Narrative is story. Um, two-thirds of your Bibles are narrative. Examples of narrative within the scriptures. Anyone? Genesis is a story. Narrative. Boom. Keep going. Exodus. Leviticus, maybe. Probably Numbers and Deuteronomy and Kings and Samuels and, yes, all of that. The bulk of the Old Testament is story. And we... Say it again. The Old Testament is stories of illustrative examples in the New Testament. Probably, yeah, because there are stories that ultimately they're looking for Messiah and redemption, and we get that revelation. And so the principles that are found through the revealing of Jesus as Messiah come through there. Yeah, that would make sense. Yes, four Gospels, Book of Acts. Our New Testament's narrative, the four Gospels and Book of Acts. They're story. They are just pure and heartfelt story. Um, you could pretty much probably also throw in um, Revelation. Uh, it's got a lot of poetry in it, but it's, it's also predominantly a story, even if it's a certain type of story. So those, that is narrative. It is story. It is, they're telling a story about someone or something at some time, and here it is. Um, within story, uh, we'll come back to it. The next type, poetry. Psalms. Anyone else? Huh? Song of Solomon. Proverbs. Lamentations. Perfect. You guys are nailing all of them. Um, We've done this before. We'll do it again. How do we know that it's poetry versus narrative? And we can see this in the book of Jonah. It's pretty clear. If we're looking at our Bibles, we have these beautiful people in life that have been called translators. They are far smarter than I am, and I would assume 
maybe most of us in this room, as long as well it comes to at least Hebrew and looking at Hebrew poetry. The translators have gone ahead and they've done some really good work for us in, in showing us, without even having to wonder, is this narrative or is it poetry, um, what the sections of poetry are. Within our scriptures, how do we know those differences? Boom. Poetry is indentive. So this is my book of Jonah. You can see it's all narrative except for chapter 2, where the indentations, it doesn't go side to side within the columns. It is indented and center margined, and that is a poetry section. So when you're looking at your Bibles, um, I like how it was kind of like that. Is Proverbs poetry? Like, yes, and it's very clear to see. So this is Psalms. It's all indented the whole way through. Um, It's the same with Song of Solomon. It's the same with Proverbs. Um, It's all poetry. There are sections of scripture where it will jump from narrative and then there will be a poetic section. Um, I could go into that in depth, but generally when that happens, uh, it's, it's kind of an emphasis. I, I like to akin it because I'm a huge fan of musicals. Um, West Side Story, maybe a little bit of Grease, Sound of Music for all the fans in the house. Yeah, great. I like to connect that when they're, they're going along with a story. Because uh, any musical, unless, of course, it's our beloved Les Miserables, where it's just song the entire time, which would be, like if there was a, a narrative or a story within the scriptures that was nothing but poetry, it would be kind of akin to that. So maybe something like the Song of Solomon, where it's kind of telling a story, but it's all written in narrative. That would kind of be like the Les Mis equivalent. Um, but generally, like if we're looking at Greece, one of my favorites, and I didn't realize how crass it was until I grew up and became an adult, loved it as a kid, and they are just going along with the story, and they're just talking, and they're doing their thing, and then all of a sudden, um, it's a greased lightning, and they break out into song. And it's this general, the idea behind it is there's, they're trying to emphasize a certain part of the story, whether it's a high point, a low point, man, I'm so in love, man, I'm so depressed, like whatever's going on, they're emphasizing it, and they're doing it by changing the type by which it's being communicated. So instead of just dialogue, they're changing it to song. Uh, within scriptures, it happens where instead of narrative, just a story, they switch it over to poetry. And they say, like, I'm emphasizing something right here. Um, and the coolest example, we, we went through it and walked through it last fall, is in Samuel. When I say the coolest, I mean, in my opinion, as far as I've studied, I think it's really cool. Uh, Samuel begins with a little bit of narrative. There's a poetry section in uh, right in the, after the beginning of it, and then it goes for a long stretch of just narrative. And then between First and Second Samuel, which if you ask the Hebrews and the Israelites, or the Jews, if you will, is it one book or two? They'll say, well, it's just one book. I don't know why you guys break it up into two. We break it up into two because there's a major action that happens between book one and book two, um, which is Saul dying, David coming, and it's expressed within a poetic section right in the middle at the break. And then it's a long section of narrative until the very end. And you see poetry again at the end. And then it finishes off with a little bit of narrative. So it's actually like structured, which is crazy. So it's beginning, middle, and end where there's poetry. And then those poetic moments are like really huge as far as the, um, either the events that are going on. So Samuel's coming into life. Saul has died. Uh, the very last one is kind of Israel, David's died, looking for their king. Um, they're also kind of, kind of important because if you look at them from a messianic lens, like the whole Old Testament is kind of searching for this Messiah, Redeemer, you get, to the, you get to those sections and you're like, whoa, like they're not just emphasizing what's going on in the story, they're also kind of emphasizing this, this longing for Messiah in the midst of the story, and they're doing it through switching from narrative to poetry. It's really, really cool if you're a geek like me and love this stuff. So narrative, poetry, and then discourse. What is discourse? How do we define that? 
Paul's letters? Okay. Anybody else's letters? Teachings. Yeah. Generally, le- letters, yeah. Like, any, any, any of the letters. And so there's no, there's no discourse in the Old Testament. They wrote completely in narrative and poetry. Um, and the letters that we find are solely in the New Testament because that's how kind of the writings and the revelation um, of God were. Basically, it's kind of what we're saying here. They're interpreting and applying the Old Testament knowledge which has now been revealed fully in Jesus and they're kind of discoursing it out um, which is really cool because we love it it's very easy theology to understand and go oh you're clearly saying this whereas story like we're looking at Jonah could maybe be a little bit more hidden and well I see what I see what you're writing but what are what is the message you're trying to say within this so uh, examples of discourse Paul's letters John's letters Peter's Hebrews um, they're all a letter from someone to someone else, and it's written very much like a letter. There's a form to the letters. All of it. It's very, it's, to me, it's very fascinating. Um, and then within those types, there are genres. And, and genres are important to understand as well because they're going to give you a little bit of an idea of what to expect when you're going into it. Um, let's take movies, for instance, because movie would be, there's many types of genre within a movie. Um, what are some genres that movies come in? I'll, I'll, drama, comedy, suspense, action, horror. Stay away from that section. Ugh. Yeah, comedy. And then ro- you have romance and comedy, and then you have the rom-coms in the middle of the two to, to bridge it. Um, documentaries, children's shows, educational. Like, it just it goes on. And basically from all of those, like, if you were to walk into... Um, you know, <laughs> I want to say Blockbuster, but I don't know if those exist anymore at this moment in life. <laughs> if you were to walk up to that red box, pick a genre. Uh, but even Netflix, that has genres within their movie titles. Basically, you know, because it's this genre, I can expect these sorts of things from it. Um, if it's a horror, you know it's going to be scary, and you shouldn't watch it ever. If it's a comedy, you know it's going to be fairly lighthearted and maybe a little bit dumb. Um, if it's uh, a rom-com, you know it's like the best movie, I'm sure, because all rom-coms are great, because they always end with a happy ending in love, and those things are just two of the best. So, so you generally know, Steve. Romantic comedy. I'm sorry. They shortened it down so we don't have to say that whole thing. Yeah, <laughs> the rom-com, the romantic comedy. Uh, who's got mail? Huh? You've got mail. Oh, who isn't? <laughs> Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan, they have mail. You've got mail. I've got mail. We've all got mail. Uh, most of it's junk mail now, but who cares? Yeah, so you, you generally know as you're approaching that genre of film what to expect from that film. You know kind of what the themes are going to be about, how maybe it's going to be presented. Um, yeah, they're just, they're great. Like I, Sweet Home Alabama, rom-com. Love it. So good. Anything with Reese Witherspoon? I think it's great. Uh, <laughs> So there's seven genres within scriptures, uh, depending who you're talking to. And when I say talking, most likely when this is a discussion in, the, in this class, it's probably who you're reading, because um, this is probably not the everyday conversation. They will break these types and genres up into different sort of categories, maybe. They might say there's you know, four types in these genres, and then there's these forms. Um, it's all kind of semantics based on who's doing the work. Um, this really makes sense to me. So three types, narrative, poetry, discourse, those are obvious. And then within those types, there's genres. So it's like saying, 
I'm going to have a song that's this genre or I'm going to have a movie that's this other genre. The type kind of determines how it's being presented. So is it narrative, poetry, discourse? And within that, a narr one narrative could be poetic while another narrative is just story. Um, it, it, one narrative could be is history in there. That probably gets later into uh, form. So seven genres. Uh, the first is the epistle. The epistle is uh, explicit to discourse. So it is a discourse epistle. It is a letter from, written to, and it has the epistle form in it. Um, and it's, they, they generally go one-to-one. -one. Some of your discourse letters can kind of form out of that because they get into maybe a little bit of apocalyptic writing, depending if you're looking at Revelation as, as a narrative or a discourse. Um, so discourse and then gospel. That's pretty select, too. The Gospels. So there's four of those. So we would say it is a, it's a narrative, it's a story, and what, what form does the story take or what genre does it take? It's a gospel, so it's about Jesus. Um, and then poetry. So you can have poetry that is simply poetry, but you can also have poetry that is story. So you can kind of branch them off into that. Um, so poetry that's simply poetry is like uh, generally the letter or the the. Proverbs. They're just kind of one-offs sort of things. Or, you can do these with most books, you can zoom out and see poetry as a story. Um, Job would fit in where? You did look. Chapter 2 is their whole bunch, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and depending on the book that you're looking at, if you, where you're viewing in, like am I looking at one section of this or am I looking at like a bigger kind of whole, the whole of the book of Jonah, we would probably say Job. Oh, yeah, totally. Sorry. Did, did you say Jonah? Perfect. Job works really well too, where Job is predominantly written in poetry, um, but if you zoom out and you see, it's actually like it's quite a story. Um, so that's ex you're nailing it. So it's it. Sometimes it can change depending if you're looking like on a macro, micro, micro level. Um, like at this point, this is poetry, poetry. But if I look at the whole, it's it's narrative, but with poetry. If that makes any sense. So, uh, and then wisdom is uh, another genre. Do you guys know the wisdom literature books of scriptures? Ecclesiastes, Proverbs. Song of Songs, Lamentations. Is there one more? Job, no, Job. I don't think Job's in there. Um, yeah, so wisdom literature generally is not prescriptive. And I like the thing that they say about wisdom literature is that it takes wisdom to understand it. Um, so if you're looking at, for instance, the Song of Solomon or Ecclesiastes, that's a great one. It's meaningless. <laughs> Everything is meaningless. What is he trying to say? There's, there's a, like a preface. You really need to work out what he's actually saying and how he's meaning it. It's not just this straight, hey, it's actually meaningless. We're not reading it like Paul's letters to say like, wow, he's really saying that this is meaningless because that's not really what he's saying. Um, story, wisdom, story, which is story. Apocalyptic and prophetic. Last two in the genre type. Anyone know the difference between our apocalyptic writing and our prophetic writing? This one's fun, and we get it confused a lot. That's really good. 
You, you nailed it. Apocalyptic is end times. It is in that day, in the end, this is the apocalyptic sort of idea. So Revelation is purely apocalyptic writing. So it is a narrative that has poetry in it, but it's apocalyptic in its genre. Um, other apocalyptic writings would be potentially parts of Thessalonians. Um, Paul's heavy with his end-time theology within Thessalonians. Uh, things like Daniel would be considered apocalyptic because he's writing about the end times. Ezekiel would be apocalyptic because he's writing about the end times. So they can change kind of in between them, but generally there is a, this is apocalyptic as a whole arc. Um, prophetic is kind of, it, it can be future, but it's, it's kind of a future here, this is the way of the Lord. They're speaking, this is God's way, and it can be corrective. It can be like, I had a vision and this is what was going to go on, but it's not necessarily the end times. Um, but it's generally a, a word from the Lord in response to something in some way that is prophetic. So what about, what do you think about Yeah, um, I, I, I do have response. What about metaphoric writing? And is there metaphoric writing within scriptures? Things like the book of Revelation, is he looking at current events within the Roman Empire and making it a metaphor for the end times? Um, any, let's, that's a good can of worms. Let's open that up real quick. Because it, it, it plays into what we're talking about. Like, is what it's talking what it's talking about? Um, so can there be metaphors within the scriptures that mean what they actually mean or don't mean what they're saying, but mean something else? What is it to be fulfilled? You guys ever seen that? Well, it was fulfilled in their time, but it was also fulfilled when this happened. Well, if fulfilled is fully filled, was it fulfilled the first time? Or was that a metaphor for something else? Like, what do you guys think? I know I'm kind of baiting it a little bit, but... There's no wrong answers in this class, so it's okay. Yeah, right. And later on, they look back and see that, but now it's really fulfilled. Yeah. Now we understand more, so we interpret it differently. Right. That's good. Any, anybody else? I think a great way to kind of interpret or just a lens to look at a lot of this through um, is when Jesus is talking about signs uh, and even acts when they're talking about signs. Um, we, we, we get into this discussion probably a lot when we say, is the kingdom here? Has the kingdom arrived? And we generally, in our postmodern age, get to say, well, yes, it is now, but it's also not yet. There, there is, I don't know if you guys ever heard that now, but not yet, here, but not here. Is the kingdom here? When Jesus is doing his work, when he's establishing or ushering in the kingdom of God, or when Paul is doing miracles or Peter is doing miracles and they say this is a sign, how do we understand that sign? Like what, what does it mean? Is it saying that the kingdom is fully here? What is, is it metaphorical? Is it speaking of something in, in a type? If, if nobody has an answer, I'll just jump in and kind of wrap it up. But. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're, we're in the middle of the action, and we're, we can't really see the whole 
the whole picture, right? Right. Yeah, like how do you answer if you're in the midst of it and you can't see the big scope of, well, when he was writing Revelation, did he think that this parallel made complete sense and now we're getting 2,000 years removed from a Roman Empire and saying, well, this makes sense in a different way, though. Or you get some like kind of overly charismatic references who they start mapping it out and saying, this is exactly how the tribulation is going to take place and where everything fits in. Like, how does that all work out? Um, I would say metaphor is, is true and it's real within Scripture. Scripture's it's hilarious to me. We can go into it like hardcore, but there's the next thing below types and genres would be form. So like a specific sentence, what form does that take on? Um, and one of the form options is irony, which is hilarious. It's that whole, uh, well, Scripture said it, so I, I believe it, and that settles it and goes, yes, but what happens if Scripture said it but didn't mean it? Like what if it's kind of a joke? You know, what if he's saying it tongue-in-cheek? Like can we, like should we be reading it that way? Or even signs, like, it's the, the, the miracles, the wonders, the literature, generally, I'm going to argue within this class specifically as we look in Jonah, is a sign that points to something bigger. If, if, it is, if Revelation is anything reflective of a Roman Empire, like, is that possible? Yes, but is that fulfilled? No, because it's, it's, I mean, that's probably the only language and context they have when wish to write, unless the Lord is somehow revealing to them a context that they don't know. Um, one of the questions I ask sometimes that like blow our minds up in this way is, is, does God sit on a throne? Does God sit on a throne? Come on, class. Is, does God sit on the throne? <laughs> is there a literal throne with a literal God, he has a literal tush, and he is sitting on it? Like, like no, but... <laughs> Yes, right, right, right. I mean, he could. And anybody who's ever seen the Lord on his throne, the, the revelation is God sits on his throne. And it's like this, yes. But what does that mean? What is that relaying to us? Well, it's relaying something that he is authority and he is sovereign and he is omnipotent or what, whatever it might be. He takes on this, there is a throne. And do we reflect that by having kings who have thrones? Or is he like, communicating that because we have kings and thrones. So he's saying, like, look, I'm the God who's really on the throne. Like, you can could, you could just start going around and around with some of that philosophy. But the idea that we can get broken out literarily and say, like, there are types and signs and metaphors and parallels and imagery and, and um, foreshadowing and all of those things within Scripture is it's good to think along those lines because they'll break us out of, and I love, Terry, what you're saying, the I'm in the story so I can't see the full of it, and just saying, like, there is a bigger story that might be going on here that this is laying witness to. So the action in itself is really good. Paul seeing a rider on a horse and there's a sword coming out of his mouth and what's really going on there? Like, well, if we just take it at face value and say, well, there's a, he's got a sword in his mouth, like, what does that mean? Well, what does the sword mean? What does it represent? What is the greater message being, like, transmitted here and within what we're talking about how is it being transmitted is it being in a, is it a story that's being spoken to us in which case it's story story which really we take as kind of like a historical context this is just what happened in the life of Samuel or within this case is it um, narrative prophetic like we're in we're in Jonah right now he is writing a narrative and he's writing it in a prophetic genre he's a prophet if you needed a hint right there prophetic prophet prophetic 
And he's writing it in such a way that because it's prophetic, it lets us have a mindset already that what he's writing doesn't have to be like in and of itself contained and wrapped up and the event was just an event and that's all that happened. But because of this narrative prophetic, it lends itself to saying there's a greater narrative or there's a greater message, there's a greater theme, there's a greater meaning that the Lord is telling in the midst of the story. Um, who loves C.S. Lewis? Come on. The Chronicles of Narnia, right? Written early in his career or late in his career? Late. Super late. It was one of the, I mean, I don't know if it was the last thing he wrote, but it was one of the later works in his career. And I've, I've heard this story uh, relayed, and I think it's, it's brilliant. He had his little inkling friends, and, um, including Tolkien. And one of the things that he came to kind of debate and then finally hash out and then finally get to, uh, I don't know if you guys knew this, I just read this the other week, um, the line, The Witch in the Wardrobe, took him over 10 years to write. Um, Mind-blowing. And he, he was asked one time, is it, a, uh, is, is it a parallel of the Christian faith? Like, are you writing basically, this is what I have, so I'm going to like mirror it in something? And he said, no, it is not a parallel. It's a what if. What if this took place? What if our faith and the truths that we hold like played out in a parallel sort of kind of universe world? And that's what he's writing. And he's writing these characters. And he's doing it through story. And he's doing it at the end of the career. Because Tolkien, mm, you can debate this, but I think it's brilliant if it's thought in this way, got him to a point where it was argued that story encapsulates truth to a far greater extent than just speaking a truth ever could. So a direct line of discourse, like what Paul is saying, basically contains only that direct line of knowledge that he's trying to get out. Whereas in a story, the encapsulation of characters and meanings and actions and uh, application and all of those things, they're so much more um, engrossed within the story because the story is contained in here, but then its meaning and what it's pointing to um, just explodes out from there. It's why Jesus, I will say, in so many times refers and responds to like the Pharisees when they come and they try to pin him down. Hey, Jesus, answer this theological question. And he responds with a question or with a story, or he has some sort of imagery within it because they're going, we can't pin him down. We can't pin down the one meaning because it's, in, it's encapsulated within a story, and it's, the story holds a far greater meaning than just writing it straight theology like that. And so, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it engages us in such a... You guys were at a lecture recently, weren't you? Yeah, yeah, it, it engages our imagination. It starts letting it play out on a grander scale than ever I could say, like, well, this is a theology of love. Like, but if we write that theology in a story, then it just opens up an entire world of what is love and how does that play. Oh my gosh, this is so great. Um, so yeah, types, genres, forms, you can get really, really nitpicky with some of that stuff. Um, we won't jump into most of that. Oh, apocalyptic. It's... It's, yeah, exactly. It's not what it is. It's written really, really similarly where there's high metaphor, especially in apocalyptic. It's like pretty much pure metaphor. Um, but apocalyptic is only going to be end times. It's limited strictly to, we're talking about the day of the Lord, end times, um, in that day when he returns or when he comes. It is an end times sort of writing. So revelation is purely end times. Whereas prophetic is, uh, it's more, this is the way of the Lord. So not necessarily the day of the Lord, but the way of the Lord. And let me correct you. Let me, 
tell you what the Lord is going to do. So it could be futuristic still, but it's not necessarily talking about in that day. It could be a prophet coming and saying, your sin has come before me and this is what the Lord is going to do. So it's still like this prophetic utterance of the Lord and his words and his actions, but it's not, it's not limited to just being an end times. Does that make sense? Yeah, so apocalyptic could fit into prophetic. Like any, any apocalyptic writing is going to be prophetic, but it's just, it's, it's kind of cutting itself out because it's always going to be about the end times. Whereas all prophetic, and what's a good example? This is always this, but this is not always that. Apocalyptic is always prophetic, but prophetic isn't always apocalyptic, if that makes sense. So that's, that's the knife that we kind of cut it down to. Um, so we're, we're about done with today. I hope you guys felt like you got somewhere in understanding like, okay, we're coming into Jonah and we're coming into, I don't really know who's writing, but it's a story. It's being written about. It is not first person, which when we dive in next week, it's going to be fairly huge because if it's not about like a first person, this is actually what happens. Does that lend me some room to think this story is greater than the events that are actually taking place? Is the book of Jonah more than what's actually happening in the book? And we're seeing a lot of that there's room for that because we see its narrative and because we see it's prophetic. So if it is a story and if it is written in a prophetic tradition, it lends room that the story itself is not this historic kind of just, this is what happened and um, that, that's it. But it's, this is, it's a form and it's lending itself to be about something greater than the actual words on the page. The meaning is found greater. It, it, the whole world, the imagination, it can trickle out and go, this is about something bigger. And I'm going to leave it on this. Even, even Jesus, you guys know that guy? Hear about him? Even he is not saying, this is what Jonah was talking about. I'm going to die and I'm going to be raised in three days. He refers to it strictly as a sign, both in Mark or both in Matthew as well as in Luke. It's, it's, there's two contexts in which Jesus says. He says, "You wicked and adulterous perverse generation, you keep asking for a sign. You you keep asking for a miracle, but none is going to be given to you except the sign of Jonah." And then he kind of pulls out some of it right there. So even he is referring back to a story, not as in guess what the story was about. It's about something greater than itself, and we can have room. Um, within kind of our, our minds and our, 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 our schemas for that because we know that it is a story, it's narrative, it is poetic or it's prophetic and, and that can lend itself to being a sign of something, a token that's about something much greater in itself or a metaphor that's much greater or a parallel that yeah, you see this but really it can apply in this huge, huge way. So um, that's that. Next week we'll go into dividing up. Um, there's so much on your pages we didn't even get to. This is great. I love it when we don't get to it. Um, we'll divide up the chapters. We'll divide up uh, some of the themes within all of them. We'll talk about words within each one. Um, yeah, let me, let, me, let me bait the hook a little bit. You guys all have, all have this or your Bibles with you. Um, I'm going to read this one way, and then we're going to dive into it um, another way, and then we'll talk about it next week. The word of the Lord that came to Jonah, the son of Matthew saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. That's really great. I think that's swell. But this is story. 
They are writing story to give you, hopefully, unless scripture writers are really bad writers, which I'm going to say they're not, they're writing a story in such a way that it's hopefully creating movement in a world and part of the saying, like, there is meaning, but it's greater than the meaning. As I'm reading this again, I want you guys to start thinking about the movement that this author is giving us. Like, even starting with, if you read the prophets before him, they just say, the word of the Lord to Jonah. He's saying, now, the word of the Lord to Jonah. So we're getting like this, what's going on? Why is it happening so fast? Saying, arise, there's this upward movement, and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee instead, going to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. And you get this if you read it in a narrative story sort of way. Holy, 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 man. This is so chaotic from the get-go. He's going up and down and he's being called too, but he's going away and he's going over and then down to the ship and the, oh, oh, what is going on? And why is it so urgent? Why don't we start with the word now? Ah! So that's what we're going to be looking at. How this narrative prophetic story is actually its story. It is, there is narrative in it, and it's going to give us this huge context of going, oh, that's what you're talking about. That's why there's such language in here that's vivid, that's crazy. Um, so we'll dive into the next two weeks, and by the end of two weeks, we'll say, is that what the book of Jonah is about? Wow. I may have never known. So uh, thank you, class. This was great. Pack up. Go to church. Um, bless you. I'll be here if you have any questions. Ready, break. <laughs>